It is indeed a great privilege and blessing to be gathered together with the best people in the world, the Lord's people. Appreciate the fact that you're here. What greater privilege is there than to come together around the Bible, the Word of God? We can be thankful for the fact that the Lord sent the rain to refresh the earth. And as the rain has benefit and value, so does the Lord's Word. In Isaiah chapter 55, in verses 10 and 11, it is written, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. We might as well deny the value and benefits of the rain as to suggest that occasions like Friday night and Saturday night and that we're blessed with again today do not have value to us. Appreciate the fact that you see the value of Bible study and that you got up this morning and made it a priority to be here. Our subject this morning concerns the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion in the religious world concerning what exactly is the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's certainly no need for that confusion as the Bible is clear in its teaching. But reference is made to the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so the Bible does talk about the gift of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Let's study to find out what the Bible teaches on this subject. Let's begin by noticing the promise of Acts 2 and verse 38. Peter preaches Jesus of Nazareth. The setting is the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That is, the apostles, they were in Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father that they would be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And so they're tearing in Jerusalem per the instruction of Jesus. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 4, there were those who were confused about that. Some mistook Holy Spirit baptism for being drunk with wine. Peter lifted up his voice against that false supposition in verse 15 saying, These are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he proceeds to quote from Joel 2, 28 through 32, in which the prophet of God announced a new day of divine revelation. Sometimes there are those who will read a passage in the Old Testament, a prophetic passage, and they'll run in about a thousand different directions speculating as to what the prophet had in mind. But you can't improve on when an apostle of the New Testament quotes an Old Testament prophet and says, this is that. There's no mistaking the import or the intent of the prophecy. When he quotes the prophecy, he says, this is that how that God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I'll pour out in those days of my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what? 
Joel prophesied is unfolding now in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he proceeds to preach to those gathered in Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth. He said in verse 22, you men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. And he powerfully proclaimed the fact that they had taken Jesus of Nazareth with wicked hands, have crucified and slain, verse 23. But he didn't leave Jesus dead in the grave. He said in verse 24, whom God hath raised up. And he preached that Jesus was at the right hand of God, exalted, and having received the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, verse 33. And then he ends with this conclusion in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The sermon was relatively short. It was simple. It was scripture-filled. It was Christ-centered. And it pricked them in the heart. They were conscience-smitten. And they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice Peter's answer when he said in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now they could have been left without hope. They could have been helpless, couldn't they? Here they had, if you will, the blood of Christ on their hands. They just put to death the Son of God. And when they said, what shall we do? They could have been told, there's nothing you can do. You've been too bad. But they were given hope. They were given an avenue whereby they could have the forgiveness of their sins. If they would repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins, it could be like it never even happened. Maybe you're familiar with those who work in the water restoration and fire restoration business. And they may have as their slogan, like it never even happened. Well, spiritually, as far as God is concerned, when it comes to the sins that you've committed in your life, it can be like it never even happened. Those can be forgiven and let go as if they never were committed. And then he said, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the context, that's the background in which the Apostle Peter made that declaration, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So I know right now, at the outset of our study, that whatever the gift of the Holy Ghost is, that there are some conditions that are necessary to receive it, right? And so what are the conditions upon which one would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so one must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins in order to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But let me suggest to you that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not to be confused with some things. There are some who would confuse the gift of the Holy Spirit with some other things. I believe that words are sometimes used differently depending on the context in which they're used. We saw that in our study Friday night with reference to the word bear. Sometimes the word bear is used in the context of bringing forth children, like the angel told Sarai's handmaid, Hagar, that she would bear a son. And then sometimes the word is used in reference to an animal, like David said to Saul, that there came a bear. And we saw that the word spirit is used different ways. Sometimes it's used in reference to the spirit of man, the spirit that the Lord formeth within man, used of a man's attitude or disposition, and sometimes used of the Holy Spirit. And just as words are used different ways, sometimes expressions and phrases are used different ways. I believe we could make a list of those if we 
had enough time to explore that, but for example, the house of God is used different ways. The house of God, as used in the Old Testament, is used in reference to the temple, oftentimes, that was built by Solomon. In the New Testament, the house of God is used in reference to the New Testament church. Like in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And sometimes, with reference to the Holy Spirit, there are expressions that are used different ways. Take, for example, the expression filled with the Holy Ghost. Like in Acts 2 and verse 4, with reference to the apostles, it is said, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That expression is different in its meaning than that which is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, when Paul said, be filled with the Spirit. And so you have the same expression, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Spirit, but those are used different ways. Filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts 2, and the context has to do with their receiving the promise of the Father, that they'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. And that was a promise to be received. But in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, filled with the Spirit is a command to be obeyed. And so they're different, aren't they? Though those expressions are similar. And as that's true, when you find the expression of the gift of the Holy Ghost or the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's sometimes used differently, depending on the context. The gift of the Holy Spirit, in Acts 2 and verse 38, is not to be confused with what was poured out and fell on the Gentiles in Acts chapters 10 and 11, which is referred to in Acts 10 and verse 45 as the gift of the Holy Ghost. I know they're not the same because they involve different subjects. The gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 2 and verse 38 was promised to those who were baptized, remember? Repent and be baptized, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Thus it was promised to those who were saved. He that believeth is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16 and verse 16. But what is referred to as the gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 10 and verse 45 came to those who had not yet been baptized. Hence were not saved. For when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, they were commanded to be baptized in the name of the Lord. If you'd like to learn more about that, if you weren't here last night, we talked in depth about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But not only did this involve different subjects, but there's a different order. The gift of the Holy Ghost, as reported in Acts 2 and verse 38, was received after water baptism. The gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 10 and verse 45 was received before water baptism. It wasn't until they received it that they were commanded to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So you have a different order as well as different expectation. When they were promised, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, they were expecting, they were anticipating the reception of that, whatever that is, whatever the gift of the Holy Spirit was, they were expecting that. But the reception of what is called the gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 10 and verse 45 was wholly unexpected. It was unanticipated. In fact, the Bible says that they were astonished in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 45. And so those expressions, gift of the Holy Ghost, are used differently depending on the context, not to be confused with what happened in Acts chapters 10 and 11 when the Gentiles received the like gift to convince the Jews that God granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life, Acts 11 and verse 18. Nor is it to be confused with the gifts, plural, of the Holy Ghost. If the Lord will, at the worship hour, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are mentioned in, among other places, Hebrews 2 and verse 4, when 
the writer said, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts, plural, of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Some think that when a person receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, that they receive some spiritual gift, not to be confused with spiritual gifts, nor is the gift of the Holy Spirit to be confused with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that this evening. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul talked about the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is, the Spirit of God dwells in the child of God. And there's controversy as to how that happens, what that involves. And we'll talk about that if the Lord permit. But the gift of the Holy Ghost is not to be confused with those things. Let me ask this question now with reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit the gift or is he the giver of the gift? When you think about that expression, gift of the Holy Ghost, at least three things would be implied by that term gift, right? You would have a giver, a gift, and a receiver. It's a mistake to make the gift and the giver one and the same thing. And so in the passage under consideration, Acts 2 and verse 38, is the Holy Ghost the gift or is He the giver? If you claim that the Holy Spirit is the giver, how do you know that, uh, or rather the gift, how do you know that He's not the giver? If that's your assertion, if you maintain that the Holy Spirit is indeed the gift, how do you know that He is not the giver? If He is the gift, shouldn't the text read, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost, rather than, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now I want to run this illustration by us for just a moment. I read a press release that made reference to the gift of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that caught my attention when I saw that and read that. I began to think about the gift of the Holy Ghost and how application could be made of that. But it was released that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation contributed $10 million to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. And so when it talked about the gift of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, what was the gift of the foundation? If someone asked you what was the gift of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, would you say that, that the museum received the foundation? Did they receive the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? No, they received what the foundation contributed, and in this case, $10 million. But if you were to ask that question to someone who maintained that the gift of the Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Ghost is the gift, then upon what basis would they say that the gift of the foundation was not the foundation, but it was something that was given or contributed by the foundation? That's just an illustration from something that we might be familiar with that we could make application of with reference to the scriptures. But notice now some equivalent expressions that are used throughout the pages of the New Testament. We saw where in Acts 2 and verse 38, the Bible uses that expression, gift of the Holy Ghost. But did you know the Bible uses that same language with reference to God and to Christ? The gift of God and the gift of Christ. And we have the same word for gift in the original in all three passages. And the same sentence structure, the same expression, word for word, the gift of. Now, look to John chapter 4 and verse 10. If you're familiar with John 4, you remember that Jesus had been journeying and he comes to Jacob's well where he meets up with a woman of Samaria. 
has a conversation with her. He said to the woman who came to draw water, Give me to drink. And the woman of Samaria saith unto him, in verse 9, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest, if thou knewest what? The gift of God. You might underscore that. You might make a little note out beside Acts 2.38, by the gift of the Holy Ghost, John 4.10, the gift of God. And he proceeded to say, And who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And so what is the gift of God? Is the gift of God God? Is God the gift, or is he the giver of the gift? Well, the context shows that God is the giver of the gift, that the gift would be living water. It'd be a mistake for one to say that the gift of God is God, but rather that which is given by God. Now, take that into consideration as you turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7, where we find the same expression used in reference to Christ. As the Bible talks about the gift of the Holy Ghost, it also speaks of uh, the gift of God and the gift of Christ. Now, in Ephesians 4, 7, Paul said, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You might underscore that. And might jot that reference out beside Acts 2, 38. Just to keep in mind that as the Bible talks about the gift of the Holy Ghost, talks about the gift of God and the gift of Christ. Now, what is the gift of Christ? Is Christ the gift or is he the giver of the gift? I'll read on where verse 8 says that when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. What were those gifts? Verse 11 identifies the gifts given by Christ. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And so the gift of Christ is not Christ, but something given by Christ. Now, when you learn that that same sentence structure, same word gift, that same expression is used in reference to God, and in that context... God is the giver of the gift and not the gift. And with reference to Christ, Christ is not the gift, but refers to something given by Christ. Then why would I turn to Acts 2 and verse 38 with reference to the Holy Spirit, where I find that same language used and conclude that the Holy Spirit is the gift and that the gift of the Holy Ghost is not something given by the Holy Spirit. And so these are equivalent expressions. The Bible is its best commentary. And we have divine commentary when we look to those expressions as used in other places. But let me suggest to you further along this line some parallel statements. Notice in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38 that expression, gift of the Holy Ghost, and how that's parallel with another statement made by Peter in that sermon just a few verses prior to that in verse 33. Remember that he had talked about Jesus of Nazareth and how that he was crucified and slain, that God raised him up. And he quotes Old Testament scripture. He quotes David from the Psalms in Psalm 16. Notice here in Acts 2, <clears throat> beginning in verse 25, he said, David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one.
to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he had raised up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Did you see an expression there that is parallel to what we find in Acts 2.38? Acts 2.38 mentions the gift of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 33. Jesus was said to have received the promise of the Holy Ghost. You might underscore the gift of the Holy Ghost in verse 38, and then underscore the promise of the Holy Ghost in verse 33, and just draw you a line connecting those two parallel statements. What did Jesus receive when he received the promise of the Holy Ghost? Did he receive the Holy Ghost in that context? Or did he receive what the Holy Ghost promised? The Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, promised that this Jesus would be raised up. That he would be raised to sit on David's throne. Acts 2, 25-31 and Acts goes back to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And so that statement is attributed to David and attributed to the Holy Spirit that what David said, what David spake back in Psalm 16 was uttered by the Holy Spirit. David, by the Spirit, said that. And so when Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he received what the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David, promised. That his flesh would... Uh, not see corruption, that he'd rest in hope, that he, and his soul would not be left in hell, and that he would be exalted and, and receive of the Father that promise. And so the promise of the Holy Ghost is not the Holy Ghost there, but what the Holy Ghost promised. Now why would I know that? Why would I understand that? And then come down to verse 38 and find a similar expression in the same context, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and assume that it's the Holy Ghost and not something given by the Holy Ghost. And so that helps me in my understanding of what the gift of the Holy Spirit is. Not, not the Holy Spirit, but something given by the Holy Spirit. Here's some other passages to consider. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. When he follows that promise, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with this de Declaration, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He said, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you. What's the promise? Well, you go back and you look at this context. Back in verse 21, he had quoted from the prophet where the promise was made, it shall come to pass, that's a promise, isn't it? It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the promise is the promise of salvation to those who would call on the name of the Lord. 
Now, that equates with what Paul said in the 10th chapter of Romans. And the subject in Romans 10 concerns salvation. He said in verse 1, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Verses 9 and 10, he said, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich unto all that call upon him. And so he, he continues in the book of Romans to show that, there, that God is no respecter of persons, that all have sinned, and there is no difference between the Jew and Greek, that the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. And, and then he says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a repetition of that promise that was made back in the book of Joel that Peter quoted on Pentecost in Acts 2. And then there's controversy over that. Exactly how does an individual call upon the name of the Lord so as to be saved? Well, there's no need for confusion about that. Just read a few passages. And we'll learn what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. He follows that with a series of questions. Beginning in verse 14, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So what does calling upon the name of the Lord involve? It involves hearing gospel preaching, believing gospel preaching, and obeying gospel preaching. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Underscored the word believed. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Underscored the word heard. And then he said, they've not all obeyed the gospel. Underscored the word obeyed. And so it takes hearing gospel preaching, believing, and obeying the gospel to call upon the name of the Lord. And baptism is certainly involved in that. In Acts chapter 2, you remember when... They heard about that promise of salvation to those who would call upon the name of the Lord. They were told, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise. In Acts 22 and verse 16, when Ananias, a certain disciple, was sent to Saul, and you recall in that context where Saul asked, was asked the question, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. What's the rest of that? Calling on the name of the Lord. And so baptism stood between him and his sins being washed away and calling on the name of the Lord. Thus baptism is an act of obedience involved in calling on the name of the Lord. And so don't overlook the connection between verse 38 of Acts 2 and verse 39, the promise and what that promise is, the promise of salvation to those who call upon the name of the Lord, and what's involved in calling upon the name of the Lord, hearing, believing, and obeying the gospel, which includes the need for folks to be baptized. Thus, when the Gentiles would call upon the name of the Lord, they would do that the same way that folks on Pentecost did that, the Jews did that, by being baptized. 
you remember back in Acts chapter 2 that he talked about this promise is to you and to your children. And he said to all that are afar off, not just a promise to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And how that there is the same Lord. He has but one plan whereby the Jew and the Gentile can call upon the name of the Lord. Thus you find similarities between those cases of conversion between the Jews on Pentecost, Acts 2, and the Gentiles in Acts chapters 10 and 11. They were, both were commanded to be baptized, weren't they? In the name of the Lord. So folks today are commanded to be baptized. But then another passage to consider is Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Acts 2.38 and Acts 3.19 both go together. They're parallel passages. One basically is a statement of the other in just a different expression. In Acts 2.38 he said, Repent and be baptized. For what purpose? For the remission of sins. And he said, You should receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. See how that compares with Acts 3.19 when Peter preaches at Solomon's porch and preaches basically the same message there that he preached at, in Acts chapter 2. And he ends it basically the same way when he says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. See how that stacks up with Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. To repent and be baptized is to repent and be converted. What repent and be converted is is to repent and to be baptized and, he's, and he said uh, in Acts 2.38, for the mission of sins. And in Acts chapter 3 and 19, he said that your sins may be blotted out. And so what happens when a person uh, receives the remission of their sins? Their sins are blotted out. God, if you will, takes his divine blotter and blots out. He erases, wipes away our sins. Same expression that the apostle used in Colossians 2 when he talked about the fact that the law was temporary, that that it was nailed to the cross, that it was blotted out, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us in Colossians 2 and verse 14. And he said that times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And then in Paul's letter to the Galatians, another passage to consider, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, the apostle said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, what's written? Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's Galatians 3, 13 through 14. He talked about the promise of the Spirit. What's the promise of the Spirit? Was that the Spirit? Is that what would come? Or was it something that was promised by the Spirit? Notice he talks about the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. And so the blessing of Abraham is the promise of the Spirit, the promise of salvation that would come through Abraham. And notice down in the latter part of that chapter, in verse 29, he said, If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Back in Genesis 12, God made three great promises to the patriarch Abraham. Promise concerning land, that, that he'd make of him a great nation, and a seed promise. And there are those who think that those promises are yet to be realized, to be fulfilled. We know that God fulfilled the land promise. Just read the book of Joshua, that God gave them all the land. Joshua affirms that all came to pass. 
And if there was some land that they didn't receive, then it must have been land that God didn't promise because they received all the land that God promised. And so he fulfilled the land promise. And he fulfilled the nation promise. You remember when they went few in number down into Egypt and Pharaoh began to place over them taskmasters to afflict the people that the more that he afflicted them, the more they grew. And they grew to such a point that uh, they became a threat. And in the book of Deuteronomy, you find where reference was made to what nation is so great. God made of his people a great nation. And so the efforts to try to limit the people of the Lord, to to keep them in a a, a certain size and and restrict their influence, if you will, uh, could not thwart God's plan or God's purpose, that God was still able to make of his people a great nation. And he brought them out of Egypt through a mighty hand, outstretched arm. But God kept that promise, made of his people a great nation. And he's kept the, the seed promise. He made that promise to Abraham that in him, that in his seed would all nations, would all families of the earth be blessed. And every time a person today is baptized into Jesus Christ, God's kept that promise. As an individual who is in Christ, is Abraham's seed in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 26 he said for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither bond nor free there is neither male nor female for you're all one in Christ Jesus and he said if you be Christ then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise And so in Galatians 3, Paul makes reference to the promise of the Spirit. What was that? wasn't the Spirit, but what the Spirit promised, that in Abraham shall all nations be blessed. goes back to Genesis 12, verse 3. And so the promise of the Spirit was not the Spirit, but what the Spirit promised, the blessing of Abraham, salvation through Christ. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2 and Verse 38, in that context, whatever it was, whatever it is, there are conditions that must be met to receive it, which include repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. It's not to be confused with some other things the Bible mentions. We recognize that in that expression there are at least three things implied, a gift, a giver, a receiver, and it is a mistake to make the gift and the giver one and the same thing. We see how that expression is used in, in other ways, like the gift of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or you might have a gift, put your name there, the gift, the gift of John Edwards. I'm not the gift, it's something that I would give you or, or contribute to you, perhaps. And we see those equivalent expressions throughout the Word of God, the gift of the Holy Ghost, as well as the gift of God and the gift of Christ. And in those passages, we wouldn't uh, think that the gift of God is God, but He's the giver. And of Christ, not the gift, but the giver, something given by Christ. And we see that same expression used in Acts 2.38. We see those parallel statements between Acts 2.38 and Acts 2.33, that when Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit, He didn't receive the Holy Spirit in that context. He received what the Holy Spirit promised. And thus it is with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And other passages that we consider, Acts 2.39, 3.19, Galatians 3, and others that could be introduced show that 
the gift of the Holy Ghost is something that was given by the Holy Ghost. I believe from our study that it is clear that the gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 2.38 refers to that promise of salvation that would come to those who call upon the name of the Lord, who hear, believe, and obey the gospel. Appreciate the way that you've listened, your kind attention to the study. And if you believe that I have missed something, I hope that you'd not let me leave without bringing that to my attention. And hope and pray that each one of us would be moved and motivated by the word of God to call upon the name of the Lord. To hear, believe, and obey the gospel, to repent of our sins, and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So that we can receive that blessing of Abraham, that promise of salvation. That we can be Christ, children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your attention this morning.